is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The economic news these days can feel like whiplash. Some days, stories about Americans struggling with deep poverty sit right next to stories about job growth and the booming economy. And the stories explaining those discrepancies are nowhere to be found. Are we looking at the right information? We are undervaluing clean water, clean air. The metrics do nothing on that score, okay? We are undervaluing care, care of elders, care of children, care of households. The metrics don't capture that. The data we collect and analyze impacts the picture we have of our economy. Some financial experts believe that in order to make real economic progress and bring prosperity to more Americans, we need to track different statistics and change the way we're looking at the numbers. How we do that is complicated. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Jean Ludwig founded the Ludwig Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity in 2019 to research more meaningful economic indicators. He talks about the challenges of that goal on stage at the festival with Sarah Bloom Raskin, law professor at Duke and former Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, and Oren Cass, the executive director of the conservative think tank American Compass. The conversation is moderated by New York Times writer David Leonhardt. Here's Leonhardt. Our goal here today is to figure out whether our economic statistics are actually capturing life well. Spoiler alert, we all think the answer is some version of no. Um, but there's a lot to discuss within that. And um, I'm going to begin with a very brief anecdote, which is um, back when Stephen Colbert had his old show, The Colbert Rapport, um, I was an occasional guest on it. And the, one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in journalism is actually they would have people come in on Fridays when they didn't tape to speak to the entire staff off air. So you'd sit on a stool on the stage that all of you would recognize as the Colbert Report stage, and the entire staff, including Stephen and all the writers, would sit in the, the seats where the audience normally sits. And they'd just throw questions at you, and you would just answer them. It was actually your goal there, your job there was just to talk very factually. They were trying to get the information that they were then going to use to write jokes. And I went, and I had a great time. They're smart in ways that people I tend to spend my time with aren't smart. They're funny. Um, and at one point, I went off on about, in my memory, it was about a five-minute rant about the problems with the unemployment rate. And at the end of it, there wasn't a big reaction from the crowd. And I thought, well, that bombed. Um, uh, but it was otherwise a really fun experience. Um, two weeks later, when I was watching the show, Stephen Colbert did the single best takedown of the unemployment rate that I have ever seen. Um, you can still look it up online. So I would just tell you, if you're looking for a humorous uh, version of this panel today, um, when you're done, um, go look up Stephen Colbert's take on how we could have better economic, um, economic statistics. So I want to start with what is a basic conundrum, which is, by many measures, our economy is doing phenomenally well. Um, GDP is growing quite strongly. We may head into a recession, but we're not there yet. Um, certainly, GDP is higher than it's ever been. The stock market has boomed over last generations. Um, it's no longer at an all-time high, but it's not far from an all-time high. Um, you could do the same with inflation-adjusted wages um, uh, across the economy. Um, they may not have grown much, but they're certainly near an all-time high. And so if you were just to look at our main economic measures, the unemployment rate, of course, is extremely low today, things look great. Um, but I think we all know that things aren't great. 
um, there are some incredibly alarming signs. I mean, life expectancy, which you could argue is the single most basic measure of, of how well a society is doing, um, uh, has stopped growing and even gone in reverse, particularly for people without a four-year degree. And so it just feels like Something is wrong with the, the measurements that we in the media, including me, um, highlight all the time. And Gene, I just want to kind of start with you. How do you make sense of this basic divide of the fact that many of our economic measures, even if they're weakening, even if they might be turning down, even if they're not perfect, it looks like American life has never been better. And yet we don't feel that way. And I don't think it's just that we're deluded. David, that's a profound question, and you've done a lot of great work in this area. Uh, you know, Mark Twain uh, uh, said, uh, there are lies, there are damned lies, and there are statistics. And we're a little bit captured by the statistics that come out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They do an honest job of collecting the data. It's a fine organization, actually, something America would be proud of but they're using definitions for the headline statistics, which were locked in the 1930s. And as you know, they've come out of concepts of the 1870s, actually developed in Massachusetts. So they, are, they, they misdirect us profoundly. Uh, and what you've said about life in ordinary America, I come from a little town in Pennsylvania called York, you can see the deterioration in middle America. You, you, you don't have to use numbers to understand it. Each one of these uh, headline statistics is horribly misleading America and misleading policymakers to our detriment. At, at the, the reason I formed the Ludwig Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity, LISAP, is to get a bunch of economists together to look at this problem after we had had a symposium that created a book called um, The Vanishing American Dream. Nobody disagreed that there was a problem here. And so uh, if you look at every one of these statistics, take unemployment, which you raised, um, the unemployment rate seems like it's great. 3.6% historically, right, is terrific. But it doesn't feel that way, and why is that? The definition is if you work one hour, 10 minutes in the last two weeks, you're counted as employed, even if you want a full-time job. So if you can't get a job, but you can only get mow one lawn, you're counted as employed. Um, furthermore, uh, if you earn below a poverty wage, and a poverty wage, I'm, I'm talking about, tw I, we, we set the bar at $20,000 a year, uh, that most states are much higher. In fact, all states are higher. Uh, you're still counted as employed. If you filter the 3.6% for uh, can't get a full-time job and you want one and can't earn above a poverty wage, the unemployment rate is actually 23%. And if you, um, uh, so functionally unemployed is 23%. And that doesn't even take into account the people who might be in the labor force, uh, something called the labor participation rate, but are so discouraged they're not trying. I'm just talking about folks who are trying uh, so it's, it, it, and you can go through every one of these. The, the um, uh, CPI is a mess. Uh, 80,000 items go into the CPI. Uh, most of those items, middle Americans can't dream to be able to afford, so they don't mean anything to middle America. And, and given what the true living cost is today for middle America, uh, uh, it's a very small basket. And if you look at that small basket, in fact, 
it's been inflating faster over the last 20 years than the CPI generally. So misleading. I'm sorry to no, so no, long, no. but this is, this is a mess, and it's an important issue for America because right, left, center, if we're shooting at the wrong target as policy leaders, we're, we're not going to basically solve our underlying problem. And I think there's some really good grist for debate and even disagreement among us there, which every panel should have, and we'll get to it. Can I just step back for one second? Sarah, you've, you've been a policymaker at the highest levels trying to look at these, these indicators and make decisions based on them. I assume you would say that many of these indicators actually are highly useful and important, but that we need others. Am I right about that? And, and how philosophically do you think about what the indicators get right and what they miss. Yeah, so I think that's exactly right, Dave. It's not an either or, it's an and. So we really do need to supplement um, our econometrics, our measures, with, with, with things that are going to really get to the core of economic well-being. So, and the reason, by the way, that we wouldn't want to just trash some of the, you know, current economic metrics is that they're used, they need to be used to track. So you need consistency in policymaking, and that's an important feature of, of doing the economic policymaking work well. Um, at the same time, there is more and more evidence that the measures, and this is really to Jean's point, that, 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 that the measures are not getting to the, to the crux of economic well-being, right? If you think of, like, let's think very macro, if you think of GDP, so GDP, um, you know, is a, is a, a straight measure of, you know, goods sold, services exchanged, complete, you know, financial transactions. But we know that it misses things. We know that it undercounts and we know that it overcounts, right? So for example, it does nothing um, to deal with issues related, you know, that, that incur social costs, right? So the, any activity can be included, uh, will be included, but there could be social costs associated with those activities. And we also know that there's a lot of benefits to activities that aren't valued, caretaking, right? Volunteerism. These are activities that don't, you know, that don't really get quantified and are nowhere uh, directly in the GDP statistics. And this is why you see movements towards new metrics, right? So there's quite a bit of idea around, like, here's, here's one, the genuine progress indicator. Okay, this is a mathematical metric that is designed to actually take GDP, pull out from it particular costs, and add into it particular non-financial activity. And so there's, there are attempts here to actually get closer to this notion of economic well-being. You know, I'm reminded, I'm guessing a significant number of people here have read Moneyball by Michael Lewis. And, uh, and sometimes, sports obviously isn't important, um, uh, but sometimes it's useful because um, it allows you to, to kind of see larger lessons. I mean, Richard Thaler, the Nobel laureate and behavioral economist, says that one reason he studies sports is because he likes sports. But another reason that he studies sports is that we collect much more data on sports than we do on, say, journalism or academia, and so you actually can take lessons from there. And if you think about Moneyball, basically it was a set of people saying the metrics we have are really flawed, and they invented new ones. You're, you, what you just said reminded me exactly of this. They didn't get rid of the old ones. We still talk about batting average in baseball. We just have a better sense of its limitations, and we've added new ones in. But one of the reasons why we still have to talk about batting average or free throw percentage or in basketball is that we have statistics for Joe DiMaggio and Will Chamberlain, right? And we want to draw lines. Or, I think that 
One of the things that I've noticed in your work is, and this may be where there's some good debate for us to have, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you would argue a little bit more, actually, you know, the financial well-being of the, of the American population isn't so terrible, and that the, that the, or it's, it's not dire, and that the statistics are capturing that. The problem is, it's just not all about money. Can you, can you correct the parts of that description that I've gotten wrong and kind of expand on it? No, I, I think that's right, and, and I should start by saying I, I agree with, with most of what Gene and, and Sarah have said about things that are inadequate about how we are doing our basic economic measures. I, I think what it misses, and, and I'll build on the Moneyball analogy, is what they were trying to do in Moneyball was come up with better statistics to score as many runs as possible. And I think there's a more fundamental problem with, with how in economics we have defined what we're actually trying to, to do, that scoring as many runs as possible may not actually be the goal. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the core insight of economics as pretty much all economists do it, as all of our measures are designed to um, bring forward, is consumer welfare. Um, the goal of our economy, the way policymakers think about it, is to maximize consumer welfare. And what that means is being able to have as much stuff as possible, ideally as at low a cost as possible, and ideally with doing as little work as possible, right? In, in formal economics, work is a bad thing. So the, the happiest and best off person is the person, if we could have everybody just not have to work at all and consume you know, what a very wealthy person consumes today, we would declare that the most successful economy. And the reality is that that would not be a successful economy at all. That, that what we actually need an economy to do is not just make sure we can consume a lot of stuff. That's, that's good and important. I'm not suggesting we you know, go, go live in cabins in the woods. But I would say more important is, is a number of other things. One is providing the opportunity to be productive contributors to the society, to support families, to achieve self-sufficiency. Um, one is meeting the, the very pluralistic needs of our society. That is, people have very different aptitudes, they live in very different places, and they need to be able to fulfill their aspirations in those places with those aptitudes. Uh, and then another is that, you know, ultimately, even if we think in more in consumptive terms, most of what we consume that is most important to us are non-market goods. If you, if you were to sort of build your stacked bar of things that matter to you in your life, once you've sort of cleared that minimum threshold, you know, building and, and having a good family, being in a supportive community, um, you know, being able to raise children and have them succeed, those things are much more important. Having a job that provides dignity, to quote Michael Sandel from earlier. This having, that, that's exactly right. And, and living in, by the way, in a society that accords you dignity and, and recognizes you as a social equal, regardless of your income level. And so I think, you know, to, to the point that you, you highlight in your question, the challenge that we face to a significant degree today is that by, by our best economic measures as economists have defined the goal and as policymakers have picked up on the goal, we really are doing extremely well. People at every point on the socioeconomic spectrum have more stuff and better stuff, whether you're talking about access to healthcare, the size of their houses, the quality of their cars, they probably have a smartphone, et cetera, et cetera. Our safety net, notwithstanding all of the rhetorical complaints, is larger and more robust than it has ever been. Um, so we could say we have more support in that respect. We do more redistribution than we've ever done before. And so I think what we have to recognize is that it, it's good that 
that people have that material well-being, but what we need to be measuring and what we need to be focusing on is all of this other stuff, that that's what's actually going to be more important, um, and that they're ultimately, and this is where the rubber meets the road, there are going to be real trade-offs. It would actually be wise of us to accept a slightly lower material standard of living, smaller flat-screen TVs, if it meant there were more opportunities in more places of the country for people with a high school degree to get a job that would allow them to support a family. You sound like a climate activist. <laughs> um, in some respects. Can I ask you this? Do you think we do enough redistribution? Um, yes. And, and I think the, the issue when it comes to redistribution is that it, it does not achieve what we want it to. Um, and that in some ways it actually detracts from what we want it to, particularly because it, it creates a culture of tell me, you know, tell me where to write the check. That for those who have more status and success in our society, the idea of sort of being generous and addressing the problems is, well, we will send more resources to other people. And what we actually need is, frankly, the much more painful willingness to give up things that, <laughs> things that, that everybody cares about more at the high end if there's going to be access to them throughout the society. Okay, so I want to invite Jean and Sarah to respond to, each to respond to one point of what you said. Um, uh, Gene, I'll ask you in a minute to respond to, are we doing as materially well as Warren just said? But Sarah, uh, I'm guessing you don't agree that we do enough redistribution. Well, I, let, let me get to something that Warren said that I thought was particularly provocative, which is um, we're talking about economic well-being. We're not really talking about stuff, right? We're talking about well-being. And I think that what we use these metrics for is really to crack open that discussion from a policy perspective as to what constitutes economic well-being. Isn't that actually the point of, of policy, of redistribution, of you know, anything that is engaged in on behalf of the economy? I mean, the whole science, so-called science of economics is supposed to be about, uh, about, about lifting people, about having people feel inclusively engaged and um, uh, uh, part of the economic, uh, sort of economic endeavor. Um, and I think that we, the problem that we're facing is, is that we are undervaluing. So we are undervaluing clean water, clean air. The metrics do nothing on that score, okay? We are undervaluing care care of elders, care of children, care of households. The metrics don't capture that. And I think the um, notion of, of confining a discussion to one that is purely financial is not going to lead us as a society to, into a place of true economic well-being. And I think what is exciting to me about that is, as this panel actually represents, I think there is actually some real possibility for cross-ideological agreement about, about that exact issue. I don't even think it should be ideological, David. Yeah. I, I, this yeah, actually, yeah. I don't even think this is, a, I mean, in fact, when metrics become ideological, it's a problem. So no, this should not be framed as left-right. I think it should be framed as top-bottom, top-to-bottom. We're talking about like, sort of inclusive economic prosperity. I, what does that mean? I agree. You could imagine, because every other debate in our society seems to, you could imagine this debate breaking down on ideological lines in which one side would say, no, we just need to care about this, and the other side. And I actually find it encouraging that that's not how it's breaking down. Yeah, I, I, um, do you disagree with Oren's portrait of the American consumer as materially doing, the American citizen as materially doing pretty well, Gene? Well, first, I, I, I want to laud 
Oren, and I agree with his notion that uh, you know, having more dignity and more you know, uh, what I would call non-economic uh, uh, tools of, of happiness is a great thing to do, accomplish as a society, and think about. I think that that's an important concept. Um, uh, at, at LISA, we're just about the facts and the numbers. And to Sarah's point, it is not ideological. I, we, I've got uh, several great economists, young people who put our numbers together. Uh, we then take the numbers in these areas, and we go to the relevant famous professors and business people, have them horse-shedded, and then take them to an economic uh, uh, for hire group to again have them looked at. It's all about trying to get accurate numbers so we know where we are, uh, not ideological. The fact of the matter is, over the last 20 years, the, uh, the income of middle-income families has declined. It hasn't gone up in real terms. And the reason for that is that, uh, the, first, the wage data is based on only full-time employment, and we have more and more people who are part-time employed, so the wage data is a little off. And secondly, uh, when you, you look at the CPI, as I'd mentioned, the CPI overstates uh, things or, or, or misstates things because it is a basket of goods and services, many of which are not relevant for middle and lower income Americans. So if you look at middle income Americans and you simply look, say, what was the relevant increase in loss, what was the relevant increase in your uh, incomes, you find a decline of 5%. Just like, interestingly enough, the increase in costs for middle income Americans is up 40%, a 40% higher than the CPI. That, that's an important distinction. The CPI going up for middle-income Americans, 40% more. And to put that in context, uh, everybody's freaked out, I am, about the gas prices up 35 38%, however you count it. 40% is bigger than that. So we've actually seen a decline. You can see it uh, when you go to small towns and cities. I'm all over America for business. You, you can see you don't have to go to to inner city Baltimore, uh, uh, God save you, which has been in horrible decline, or, or other cities around America, but in small towns. You can see it in our, the extremes in our politics and our voting patterns, uh, where you find uh, counties that went one way one election and they go wildly the other way the other election because they're looking for some body and some group who can help them out of their deteriorating economic circumstances. So I agree with Oren that that in fact, we basically ought to be providing people dignity and real jobs. It isn't just giving them things, stuff. But on the other hand, I think at the end of the day, we're about numbers, and the numbers show a decline in people's economic well-being. And, and uh, that's what the team does every day. And, and uh, I think at the end of the day, that's enormously important for our being able to crawl out of the hole we're in. As a transition to to questions from all of you, I want to ask the question I mentioned before from Zoe Baird, which is, uh, Gene, you mentioned inflation. So w what do each of you think is a plausible policy response that could address inflation in the medium term other than simply putting people out of work? Um, uh, I think we all agree that if uh, either for the Fed or fiscal policy put a lot of people out of work, put us into a recession, we would bring inflation down. That's pretty unpalatable for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, do you see other ways um, uh, to bring down inflation? 
Well, I, I think it's a, an important sort of question of what you think is driving inflation. So to the extent that the, the inflation issue is purely a mathematical one, that essentially what got us into this problem of we now have, there's a lot more money out there versus the exact same productive capacity of the economy. Um, there are ways you can try to unwind that. The problem is when you go beyond that to the expectations game and people now price in an expectation of inflation, you're, you're into a more psychological situation where just trying to get the numbers to line up better isn't going to fix it. Um, and so, unfortunately, I don't, I don't see much of an alternative at this point to some short-term economic pain. Um, and hopefully with it will come a reminder, which maybe we need roughly every 40 years, that the economy at the end of the day is, <laughs> is, is about the actual production that is possible in the American economy uh, and not just sort of numbers that you get to throw around. Gene, any thoughts? Well, we're in a pitiable situation. Uh, uh, the Federal Reserve is responsible for inflation uh, control in this country. Uh, they've created as an independent agency to basically take on that responsibility. Um, lamentably, the Fed really has only one effective tool. In fact, we only seem to have one effective tool in our society, and that's raising interest rates. The problem with that is it's kind of like administering chemotherapy. In other words, it will work eventually, as Paul Volcker showed us, but you, you, this is a tool you can kill the patient. And unfortunately, what it does is it's disproportionately impactful. Low and moderate income people lose their jobs first, by the way, particularly black people. They're the people who first lose their jobs in our society, and they're the last to get it back. And in a mark-to-market economy, where we mark things, the accountants doesn't mark things right away, you find these enormous dips because of that, and people's lives are ruined. So you're right to ask the question, David. It's a profoundly important question, which is what other tools can we use uh, to solve this problem? I would, in one sense, uh, tip it over to the Fed and say, hey, look, you got 3,000 economists. You know, this is your big thing to do. Go figure out some other tools. Um, uh, it's very hard. It's easy to say that, uh, and it's easy to pass the buck. Um, okay. Nixon tried, right, with wage and price controls. Did not work. They, they have not worked. That kind of government. The, the, today, I think there's an attempt to being made to, uh, you know, lower tariffs, lower taxes to deal with. There may be something in that at the end of the day. It's temporary. It can't be forever because it changes policy directions. I would say just as important as uh, what you do to control inflation is what you do right now with the people who are going to be most damaged by the use of the chemotherapy tool. In other words, how do we deal with people who are going to see their lives ruined, their homes taken away, uh, because nothing in terms of their own imprudence, but because this horse has gotten galloping faster than people had anticipated. And so, you know, it, during, during the pandemic, we did a rather good job of putting support under small businesses. The PPP uh, effort was a big success. Right now, I think as much as figuring out what the long-term tools to control inflation are, other than um, raising interest rates, I think we ought to be immediately figuring out what do we do 
about a big portion of our society, including small businesses, uh, and, and not seeing them wiped out in what may well be a serious recession. Sarah, it seems to, I can imagine some things that would address inflation. I mean, we could raise high-end taxes. Um, we could uh, lower tariffs. We could increase immigration. We could do some sort of hard work to increase the supply chain. Is it, is it just, am I wrong? You're not wrong. So, um, you know, inflation, as, as Jean and Oren both described, I mean, they, it, they're, they're components that are both demand-side driven and supply-side. And when the Fed, you know, when the Fed takes on the role of, of, of curbing inflation, they are dealing with the demand side. That is the side because they use it through their interest rate lever. So it's going to be a demand-side tool. And as Jean says, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty blunt and it's pretty draconian and it can pretty much flatten things out if it's... Um, kind of if it's overused. So the, um, the tool is a blunt one, but it just deals with the demand side. So to Dave, to your point, there's a supply side component to, 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 our, to our high prices right now. And by the way, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that inflation itself is a bad, it is hurting people, it is hurting working class people, it is hurting anybody who is, you know, who doesn't have an electric car and is paying, you know, these, these high prices at the pump. So inflation hurts. Um, more is going to have to get done, though. To your point, Dave, it is not just going to be the Fed. It's, there are going to have to be some fiscal uh, side efforts that are going to have to come to play because other than that, you're going to have the Fed doing, you know, sort of pushing and pushing on this very aggressive and blunt tool to do what Oren says, you know, curb inflationary expectations. But at the same time, you can trigger, you will trigger a recession if you don't at the same time address these supply chain issues. And that is a, you know, that's a very interesting set of discussions, which is why have we, as an economy, why have we been shocked with these big supply events? Like, what is going on? Why are, why are we not able to move, once we're shocked, back to a place of lower prices? You'll remember at one point the Fed thought inflation was going to be transitory, right? They thought, yep, there'll be, a, you know, there'll be a shock and it'll come right back. And it hasn't come back. What is it about our economy that is holding back the movement into a lower price, maximal employ, employment kind of context? And that's where you get into these other kind of other possibilities. Yeah, Sarah, I think that's very astute. And uh, it, it seems to me, it goes to what I'm worried about, which is that we're mismeasuring things and that the accurate measurement would help. As I mentioned, inflation is not new. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, the, the king with no clothes. So all of a sudden we've discovered that the king had no clothes. You know, there's this uh, fable of the Middle Ages or something. But in fact, the king has had no clothes for a long time. For 20 years, middle and low income Americans have suffered from increase in inflation, which has been materially greater than the society as a whole, because we've used, when we measure these things, huge aggregates that push things together. If we had a better sense of what inflation in fact was doing throughout the society with better measurement tools, which is what LISAP is all about, that's what we're trying to do, I think it would help the Fed get some you know, headlights in terms of what's coming, uh, because it, it, the Fed and the, even using the blunt instrument works better if you're raising it a quarter percent, giving people slow direction in terms of what's going to happen, as opposed to have to hit, hit them in the head, which is where we are now. 
So uh, I think at the end of the day, it's not a solution to all problems, but getting statistical measures that are accurate will help society be able to manage itself better than we've been able to do before. Because if policy leaders don't know what's happening, they're, they're just in a complete quandary, complete mess. And that's what we do in Lysen. Okay, let's hear your questions. We've got two microphones on either side. Let's start down here. Um, Good morning, thank you. I'm Melinda Delmonico from Golden, Colorado. So two, two things that arose for me listening to you. One is I was pondering, okay, what about our national debt in, the, in this conversation and how it affects everything that's going on? And secondly, I was thinking about, I have a legal staffing company and the generational issues between the boomers, the Xers, the millennials, and I know the Xers are 50% smaller. And so when you look at statistics, that's gotta factor in as well. With, with society and, and how things are, are flowing. Orrin, how much do you worry, thank you. How much do you worry about our fiscal condition? Well, I, <clears throat> I think it's a huge issue and it, it speaks to, you know, something I was saying initially about the inflation topic, which is, you know, where did this come from? It came from a very dangerous idea that was popular at various festivals, not necessarily this one, that it, you could print and spend as much money as you wanted, and it didn't matter. And if inflation ever happened, you could respond by just sharply raising taxes. It's called modern monetary theory. It, it was obviously a horrendous idea, but it was taken very seriously by a lot of people and helped fuel this choice to just shovel trillions of dollars into the economy over the past couple of years, far beyond what was needed as pandemic response. We already had one of the most generous fiscal responses in the world, very effective, and we just kept going. And let's not forget, we had Build Back Better, which was a, a plan to go even further. And so, you know, this is somewhere where I, I disagree with Sarah uh, about the idea that, you know, either this was about supply chains or, you know, maybe there were folks at the Fed who thought it was transitory, there are an awful lot of people who said, no, if you don't take seriously the actual fiscal constraints of what is actually happening in an economy, not the way you play with the numbers on the side, you're going to get into real trouble. And we're now in real trouble. And I, I would just caution folks not to look for the win-win that gets us out of the trouble without the downside. Because policymakers and politicians are really great about coming up with those ideas, and they're not real. Or we, have, we have done this to ourselves. And we are going to have to be serious about what it's going to take to get out of it. One question I have about that is I have no doubt that Build Back Better contributed to inflation and that if the Biden administration had a do-over, it would be smaller. But when you look around the world, it, in, high inflation is a problem essentially around the entire industrialized world. Just looking at the global scene doesn't make our fiscal response look like it was the main factor. Do you disagree with that? Well, so one clarifying point, Build Back Better is already the one beyond ARP. So the Biden administration did ARP, which they probably would now acknowledge I'm sorry, was I too meant big. I meant it's just important to remember that they had an additional several trillion yes. dollars on top of it that they wanted to do. I, yeah. Um, I mean, I, when you look around the world, it doesn't look like our fiscal response, which actually spanned the Trump and Biden administrations, is the main thing going on. No, I, I don't think it, it's certainly not the only thing going on. And I think the supply chain constraints and the question of how we get out from under those is, is a really important question as well. But that is, again, where I, I look at, okay, well, what's happened? What caused exactly that sort of inflexibility that, that Sarah described? And part of it was an absolute priority on efficiency over resilience in the way we built our economy over the last 20 years. And so when you think about something like globalization, generally as a philosophy, it is sort of the 
ultimate example of this mindset that says as long as we are getting more cheaper stuff to people, we are doing a good job. Right. And it is, and, and what's interesting in the discussions now is there is, there is an extraordinary effort, mostly from policy elites, to try to come up with some way to, to address all this pain that we're suffering with, without touching the idea that maybe the way we've done globalization is part of the problem. And so this idea, for instance, that cutting tariffs would somehow address inflation is a classic example. Cutting tariffs would maybe reduce inflation by a couple tenths of a point once. <laughs> it's a one-time level change. It's not a response at all, and yet you have all of these economists rushing toward as a pretext to advance their pro-globalization policy. I think, honestly, the, well, how, maybe we should expand immigration to address it is the same sort of thing. Expanding immigration, the actual theory here is let's find ways to suppress wages as a way of getting, like, that's the actual mechanism. And it doesn't sound like such, <laughs> the, the idea sounds less savvy if your idea is, hey, let's find ways to suppress wages to get out of this. Um, especially when you then have to admit that one of the consequences of immigration is suppressing wages. And so I, I apologize for going on, on a bit of a rant, but, but it seems to me that, and this goes to my broader point about how are we even defining what we're asking the economy to do, that there's a short term, okay, we can, we can fix what is hurting us at this moment, and go back to what we've been doing for the last 30 years, again, for the next 30, or we can take this opportunity to actually learn some of the lessons and make, I think, some more fundamental shifts in defining what it is we're even trying to achieve and then pursuing the kinds of policies that are going to achieve those things. Uh, I, I, let, me, let me just answer what Oren said, because I have a, uh, obviously a lot of respect for Oren, and this is an enormously important topic, but it, is, it goes also to numbers a little bit. I am not in my own mind clear that the uh, fiscal stimulus in and of itself or, or fiscal stimulus as a general rule is, you know, the evil, the inflation evil. We have not been able to have in the United States a two-handed policy, fiscal and monetary, for a very long period of time. And it's only been fairly recently we've had more robust fiscal policy. Spending money for the federal government it depends what you're spending it on. And if you take the infrastructure bill, spending it on, you know, bridges that don't fall down, schools, you know, child care, all kinds of other things, as investments, and if you analogize some of these uh, expenditures as investments, there's no business on earth that exists without borrowing for investment to, to, to make the business work better and more efficiently. What I think, uh, I, and I, we will not know, and I do not know, whether the, the uh, stimulus over the last several years is going to prove out to have been the great cause of inflation or not. I don't know. I, and I don't think any economist can be certain as to what that answer is right now. You could say that had the Fed started to raise interest rates early at a quarter percent, when it, the fiscal stimulus, we would have seen a shift in how we spend and who gets the benefit of that spending, uh, and inflation would have stayed under control. But, but I do think before we basically have knee-jerk reactions as to what to do, we really need the numbers to understand what choices we're making and what, um, at the end, what costs we'll pay for making those choices. Let's Sorry. get to our next question. 
Tracy Palangian from Social Finance, thanks for a great conversation. I want to ask um, the panel to reflect on a different set of economic metrics and a topic that you've written a lot about, David, uh, on inequality, income, wealth inequality, lots of metrics that are objective and, and not ideological, as well as economic mobility, the ability of people to move up and down. Um, maybe we can inject some ideological debate, but I'd love to hear from you on, on these metrics, as well as maybe going back to David's earlier question, has it been redistributive enough? And what is the optimal or acceptable level of inequality that we should accept as a society? Because we know that having rewards and incentives for people to strive and work hard and innovate is good for society, but what, what kind of disparity is unacceptable that we can have uh, such extremes that can lead to significant social and economic consequences, not least on our democracy. Thank you. Sarah, can you give us a quick sense of the state of inequality and mobility in this country? Yeah, I think your question is spot on. Um, and it, it, it exists and it's growing. Metrics both regarding wealth inequality and income inequality are showing that we've actually created, we have much greater heterogeneity in incomes than we, um, you know, than ideally you would want for optimal economic growth. So there are costs. I don't know whether there's like a actual trigger point where we say, whoa, that's like the tipping point, like enough is enough. I think, I think we're seeing it right now. We are seeing the effects um, in, 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 in so much policymaking regarding the um, uh, uh, both political and economic effects of income and wealth inequality. You know, yeah, it's interesting. I would focus on this slightly differently as the sort of first thing to think about. The income inequality thing is, you know, fraught with really important uh, things for us to discuss. It's worth a whole panel plus. It is a big issue in terms of society, what kind of society we want to have, you know, whether it's fair, et cetera. But I'd rather see us focus, and that's what we're trying to do, on creating... Uh, an economic prosperous level for middle and lower income Americans that is acceptable in our society. And to Oren's point, a, a living standard that is decent for all Americans. So where we've been focusing is everybody having a living wage job that wants it. So they can raise a family, succeed in, in enjoying the American dream, seeing their children if they want advance in society. And it, it, so that's the baseline that I worry about. Uh, you know, do we have America going down from middle below? Do we have America going up? Uh, that I think is as important as the, the disparate treatment itself, uh, because you could have you know, more compressed treatment, but if we, we have a society where you know, middle and lowest mis living miserably, we haven't achieved much. So our focus is very much on how do we have a decent standard of living for middle and low-income Americans that's going up as opposed to going down? Warren, you wanted to get in before we get to Yeah, I just, I've, if Sarah will forgive me for, for picking on her a little bit, I, I, was, I agree entirely that income inequality is, is a serious problem in this country. Um, but I thought it was, it, it's a good example that the reason that Sarah highlighted for it being a problem is that it is not at the distribution that is ideal for economic growth. Um, and that just strikes me as not especially important um, in terms of what we should be focused on and how we should think about why inequality matters. Um, and, and I think it's really helpful in, in getting to what we want to be measuring, what we want policy to be doing, to be really careful about describing why we care about inequality. So I think Gene made a good point 
about this, it, it, maybe it's less about inequality than absolute living standards. Key and I actually disagree a little bit on this because I would say actually in terms of absolute living standards, the bottom is doing okay. And particularly when you take redistribution into account. And so I would say the reason we care about inequality is because of all those things that we're not talking about or measuring at all. Because of, as Jean said, and I agree completely, we are not creating the right kinds of jobs opportunities in the bottom half of the income distribution because the communities in which these people live are falling apart and are bifurcating away from the communities for the other half because family structure is collapsing in one half. And so I think we need to talk about those as why we care about inequality and have measurements that tell us when we're getting better on those things. I'm getting the zero sign. Um, uh, I know there are many more questions out there, but fortunately we have much, many years to discuss these issues. Thank you to the entire panel. Thank you to all of you for so showing up this morning. Jean Ludwig is the chair of the Ludwig Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity. Focused on low- and middle-income families, the Institute researches new economic indicators for unemployment, earnings, and cost of living. Ludwig is also CEO of the Promontory Mortgage Path and co-managing partner of Canopy Fintech Venture Capital Fund. Sarah Bloom Raskin is the Colin W. Brown Distinguished Professor of the Practice of Law at Duke University Law School, where she's faculty director of the Global Financial Markets Center and a senior fellow in the Duke Center on Risk. From 2014 to 2017, Raskin was Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury where, among other achievements, she led development of the G7 Fundamental Elements of Cybersecurity for the financial sector. Orrin Cass is the Executive Director of American Compass, a conservative think tank. Previously, he was a Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and Domestic Policy Director for the Romney-Ryan 2012 Presidential Campaign. He is a contributing opinion writer for the Financial Times, and his commentary has also appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, National Affairs, and National Review. David Leonhardt is a senior writer for the New York Times, where he writes the daily newsletter, The Morning. Previously at the Times, he was an op-ed columnist, Washington bureau chief, co-host of the Argument podcast, founding editor of the Upshot section, and a staff writer for the Times Magazine. Leonhardt won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary for his columns on the financial crisis and its aftermath. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.